0: Farm. Food. Facts. Where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to the Farm Food Facts interactive podcast presented by the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance for Wednesday, January 9, 2019. A Happy New Year to all. Today, our thought leader is Zippy Duvall, the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation and member of the White House Advisory Committee for Trade Policy and Negotiations and a beef cattle rancher who will share his insights on the new farm bill and other policy matters. Later in the podcast, we will have a robust discussion with Charles Bowling Jr., the incoming chairman of the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, who will share his goals for the alliance, as well as the challenges he faces as a farmer with five diversified crops on 1,400 acres in Newburg, Maryland. Let's get started. As president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, I know that you and Secretary Purdue have been working very hard to promote agriculture and also make it a bit stronger. And working on the White House Advisory Committee for Trade Policy and Negotiations, that puts you smack in the middle of the new Farm Bill. Congratulations on getting that passed. What are you most excited about, Zippy, for the farmer and the entire food industry over the next five years?
1: Well, first of all, if you look at what we did and and the uh, uh, the working of the farm bill, we're just very proud of the process of the four principles and how they work together to get it done. You know, we really made history with this farm bill because it's one of the few farm bills, if not on, the only one, that was introduced and passed in the same year, mm-hmm. and then we had bipartisan votes with overwhelming support of this farm bill. So. We made a little history with it but what it brings to the table is five years of certainty for our farmers and the consumers uh, out in america and that certainty is uh comes in the way of improvements of our risk management programs uh, we all know as individuals we have to buy insurance for our homes and our autos and those products are changed from time to time to uh, fit the time that we're moving in and how they stay competitive well risk management programs are the same way and and we're just proud of that. The second thing, it protects the crop insurance program uh, that is uh, the foundation of the 2014 Farm Bill now is the foundation of the 18 Farm Bill. Uh, it also d- develops funding for uh, a trade development. A uh, trade is such a crucial issue to uh, American agriculture, be able to move our surplus products out of the country into other parts of the world that need it and want it, but it also creates a tremendous amount of jobs and in rural America and in America in general. And then we move on to talking about the future. It makes uh, good investments in the future by putting money and research and development to keep agriculture on the cutting edge so that we can be competitive with the world. It also makes investments in our future by helping develop uh, beginning farmers uh, so that we can generate that next generation of, of farmers out there. And then the last thing that I would bring to this point is that it, it continues to support conservation programs that helps that partners with farmers and ranchers across the country to help protect the natural resources of our great country uh, so that all Americans can enjoy those resources.
0: Zippy, I, I think, you know, it certainly is historical as, as you said, and especially I am, you know, uh, really excited about the idea of really getting a new generation of farmers in there a recent report that i that i saw showed that we are having more new farmers and they're better educated which is so much you know, so much needed as we get into more technology on the farm. So I applaud the work that you and secretary Perdue did. Um, I have another question for you. You know, you've been active in farm politics since 1977. I'm sure you've seen many significant developments. What stands out as the most important development over, over these decades for the farmer?
1: Well, I would say uh, to start off with it, um, You know, 2018 stands out as a time period of the successful policies that we've been able to uh, work on and and mature and and bring through for agriculture. I really look at this time period as, even though uh, 18 was a terrible, terrible financial year for farmers, Mm -hmm. and we're all, as farmers and I still farm myself, are glad that uh, 18 is in our rearview mirror and hope that 19 is going to be financially better and more successful. But as far as ag policy, it was probably going to go down in history as one of the most positive years, most successful years in ag policy that we've had in a long, long time, if not in our history. But to pinpoint one specific accomplishment, uh, and we're still really in the process of that, is the new uh, Clean Water Clear Rules uh, ruling that's coming out that offsets uh, a very destructive rule that was put forth by the previous administration, and we all referred to it as WOTUS. And five years ago, we started a campaign to ditch that rule because it was it represented the largest land grab by the federal government in the history of our country, and it took away a lot of our private property rights. It would have not just affected agriculture and the owners of the land; it would have affected utilities, cities. Um, You know, everybody that worked the land in whatever way they handled it because it allowed for the federal government to uh, regulate almost all the land that might carry water or uh, water's puddles of water would be uh, set up on. So, this new rule that we call it the clean water rule, it gives us clarity and gives us the ability to read the definitions that are in the rule and go on our farm and determine whether or not a waters of U.S. Are, are, are present on our farm without us having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to hire consultants or attorneys to represent us in that area. So if I had to pick out one policy accomplishment, I would pick that one out. And now we're in the process of making comments on the new clean water rule.
0: You mentioned that 2018 for farmers was not the the ultimate year financially. Uh, why is that? Is it because of trade? Is it because of climate conditions, with rains, with fires? Um, why has it just been so tough over this past year?
1: Well, all of the above. I mean, the farm economy is uh, as bad as we've seen since the 80s, and I, I farmed through the 80s as a young farmer. Um, and and the, the the commodity the prices that we're receiving whatever that whatever is influencing that which would be one of those things would be trade but the storms that we experienced, the fires that we experienced, uh, all those things come into uh, effect with that so uh, it's just been a very difficult year a lot of areas. Uh, couldn't get the crop in and when they did get it in they got too much rain it in couldn't get it harvested we're still trying to get uh, beans and cotton out of the field in certain areas of the country Uh, so it's just been a very very trying time Uh, we we describe it or i describe it as american agriculture in 2018 is facing a perfect storm uh that perfect storm uh from the farm economy all the way to uh the lack of labor uh that we have and Policies around that uh, to um, uh, to overregulation, so uh, it, it's a very difficult time for farmers out in America.
0: Sure, and and especially when you look at the storms, the fires in California, on the East Coast, in in the South. I mean, these are our our. Parts of the country that have some of the richest, you know, soil and <laughs> richest agriculture, you know, that, that's out there. So, you know, they've been devastated. So, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to 2019 being the year of the farmer and, and finally getting past all this. In your role with the American Farm Bureau Federation, you do a lot of traveling. You talk to a lot of different farmers. What's on their minds as it relates to what's going on besides 2018 being a devastating year? What are they thinking about for the future?
1: You know, the first thing on top of their mind is the perfect storm that we're facing. And that one piece of it that we haven't been able to really been successful in policy is farm labor. I mean, really and truly, if you go to farms and you start talking about issues and what's on their mind, You know, they go to bed at night wondering who's going to be there to help them in the morning. Uh, They also, a lot of them would love to bring young people back into agriculture. And whether it's your children, your grandchildren, or niece or nephew, or just a new person that wants to get involved in agriculture, how do you bring them back and involve them in your farm if you can't expand because of the lack of labor? Because if you expand, you've got to have the labor force there to do it. So I think that's top of their mind is is what are we going to get done uh, about our labor force? The other thing is sustainability, uh, and sustainability uh, is defined uh, differently uh, to all to different people, but it, on the farm, you know, we're the perfect example of sustainability. No uh, industry has been more sustainable than agriculture, but then if you look at it from the consumer side, sustainability means, you know, what are we doing for the environment? How are we protecting natural resources? What is the new technology doing to that? those natural resources and on the farmer's mind is, how do we utilize these technologies and how do we communicate to our neighbors that aren't part of agriculture, uh, why we're we using these new technologies, how they help us be more sustainable by using less chemicals, by plowing less, by uh, using cover crops, all the new technologies that are coming down the pipe helps us be more sustainable more productive, and that's good for the consumer, it's good for the world, and it's good uh, for a lot of different reasons. So uh, public perception uh, uh, and how do we communicate with our neighbors and our consumers to understand that we got the safest food uh, supply in, in America's history and, and all these technologies and our methods of way we produce it uh, is the reason that we have the the safest food supply.
0: Yeah, no question. There's no doubt that we have the world's safest food supply because our farmers, ranchers, and everyone along the supply chain has made it their top priority. So, Zippy, I understand that this week is your 100th anniversary. You don't sound that old.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, sometimes I feel that way in the morning, but it is the 100th anniversary for American Farm Bureau, and we're going to be in New Orleans celebrating that at our national convention. Uh, in 1919, farmers came together to create a one united voice for the American farmer uh, to represent them in the areas of policy making in Washington D.C. and also in their state capitals. So uh, we've been working hard over the years, and we're going to celebrate all those successes that we've had for a hundred years. Uh, you know that mission that we started out a hundred years ago remains the same today. We're a grassroots organization. Working hard for farmers to make sure they have one united voice in the policy area. So we're we're real excited, and we may have some uh, we're going to have some exciting visitors there, and we hope that everybody will tune in and uh, check us out and hear what's happening in the great celebration of American Farm Bureau's hundredth anniversary.
0: Well, Zippy, thank you for all your hard work for the American Farm Bureau Federation for all farmers and for our country. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed the opportunity, and we look forward to a very good 2019.
0: Here's what retailers and restaurants can learn from farmers who have reduced their use of antibiotics. Two years ago, farmers and veterinarians stepped up together to make a change in their use of antibiotics important to human medicine. Farmers and vets describe these changes as part of their commitment to responsible use. The results of these efforts are now in, and they reveal a significant impact. The FDA reports that sales of all medically important antibiotics decreased 33% between 2016 and 2017. Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner, says these reductions are an indication that our ongoing efforts to support antimicrobial stewardship are having a significant impact. It was a joint effort from farmers, ranchers, veterinarians, and animal health companies that committed to using medically important antibiotics only as necessary to prevent animal suffering. The striking drop in sales of these antibiotics indicates that they followed through on their pledge. The sales data provides evidence that farmers and ranchers share the concern about antibiotic resistance and that they care about the welfare of their animals. A measured approach like this aligns with the commitments made by agriculture and animal health communities, which led to a dramatic reduction in the sale of medically important antibiotics for agricultural uses. To put it simply, it had a huge impact without making it more challenging for farmers and veterinarians to protect animal health. As antibiotic use in animals continues to be a concern among consumers, it's important for those involved with animal ag to highlight their values backed by data like this. This change was achieved voluntarily, while allowing antibiotics to be used only when vital to protect an animal's health. Antibiotics do play a key role in the prevention of animal sickness and suffering, which is an intention shared by farmers and vets, restaurants and retailers, as well as consumers. What grocers need to know is that this voluntary act had a notable impact without making it more challenging for farmers to protect animal health, which is good news, as antibiotic use in animals, which can lead to antibiotic resistance, continues to be a concern among many consumers. This is a great example of how farmers and the supply chain can band together of their own accord to make beneficial changes rather than waiting to have mandatory regulations foisted upon them. Speaking of beneficial change, the Salvation Army is starting to sell groceries. The well-known nonprofit organization wants low-income families to have better access to healthy foods. And so, the Salvation Army has launched a new grocery chain called DMG Foods. The DMG in the title is an acronym for the Salvation Army motto, Doing the Most Good. It's being called the first-ever nonprofit supermarket, and it opens its doors in Baltimore, Maryland. According to their website, the store's goal is to provide lower-income families with better access to fresh foods. The site reads, DMG Foods is the first grocery store in the nation to combine social service with a traditional grocery shopping experience. Our social services include nutritional guidance, shopping education, workforce development, and meal planning. And according to Food & Wine, the store has teamed up with the Maryland Food Bank, and customers will be able to purchase pre-made salads, order meat from an on-site butcher, and even learn how to make healthier meals with help from in-store cooking demonstrations. The Salvation Army has not clarified if or when it plans to expand to other cities, but judging by the response the DMG has already received, it wouldn't be shocking to see a few more turn up around the country over time, and that would be a good thing. What grocers need to know is that DMG Foods is the first grocery store to combine social service with a traditional grocery shopping experience. If this new grocer expands, it will be quite interesting to see just how its outreach develops and impacts other retailers. And as the traditional grocery shopping changes and evolves in our modern times, something is growing in momentum and popularity, and it's the ever-so-convenient meal kit. Meal Kit Mania. Consumers love this modern, innovative offering. So why are these companies failing? In just a few short years, Meal Kits have created a unique place in the U.S. grocery space, and they are no longer the exclusive domain of innovative startups that are aiming to deliver fresh, time-saving options to time strapped consumers' doorsteps. Those seem to be failing. It's the traditional grocery retailers who have keenly observed the public's response to this convenient offering and accruing lucrative results by offering a variety of in-store meal kit options. In fact, at the end of 2017, in-store meal kits generated $154.6 million in sales, boasting a growth of more than 26%. And that's just the beginning. The data tells us that 9% of Americans who have tried a meal kit only 6% have purchased them exclusively online. Restaurants and traditional food grocery have trended near flat growth overall, while in-store meal kits, digital delivery, and e-growth are surpassing the norms. And meal kits, well, they're responsible for three times the growth. Nielsen's What Cooking Report finds that the consumer segments who are enthusiastic meal buyers and why. The survey finds that nearly 60% say value for the money is extremely important, almost half say that low-cost items are important, and 56% of consumers say that meal kit services are not affordable for everyone. Therefore, for both retailers and meal kit providers, this insight suggests that they need to clearly articulate the value that their offerings provide when pitted against traditional options. What grocers need to know is that as retailers look at the potential in the meal kit space, they need to understand the attributes that consumers look for, like good value at low cost, and develop offerings that clearly highlight the value that they offer when compared against more traditional offerings. It's a lot more than just offering fancy recipes that you can make at home. And meal kits aren't the only non-traditional option experiencing rapid growth e grocery is on the rise with Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. Amazon commits approximately $22 billion in future food purchases as it proliferates Whole Foods. We recently joined Walter Robb right here as a guest on Farm Food Facts, and Walter, being the former co-CEO of Whole Foods, spoke a bit about the importance of retailers working with farmers. Now, while a full-fledged grocery business is a new terrain for Amazon, a recent disclosure reveals its long-term plan to make Whole Foods work as a major revenue driver. After acquiring Whole Foods, Amazon took on an additional $22 billion in contractually obligated future purchases. This balance is nearly completely tied to the grocery chain's existing contract with its largest supplier, United Natural Foods. Large multi-year supplier contracts are quite rare for Amazon, as the online retail giant is notorious for signing short-term agreements that put ongoing pricing pressure on its suppliers. Patrick Battaloto, an accounting professor at the University of Texas who has followed Amazon for years, had this to say regarding the financial disclosure. It's definitely a clear signal of Amazon's commitment and confidence to make the Whole Foods deal work. There's a huge commitment to keeping many of the core Whole Foods products there. He also mentioned that Amazon's disclosure is especially significant because it extends through the year 2025. Most big box retailers don't commit to such specific multi-year purchasing agreements, he said. For context, nearly all of Costco's future purchase obligations are accounted for this year, while fewer than half of Kroger's obligations go behind its current fiscal year. He notes that it's meaningful different. Amazon is going full throttle into the grocery industry. What grocers need to know is that the Amazon Whole Foods merger will continue to be important to watch as Amazon is going full throttle into the grocery industry and making a large commitment to suppliers. Online food shopping, both delivery and click and collect, is likely to see a large boon and will continue to evolve. And although online grocery shopping is on the rise, brick and mortar stores aren't going away anytime soon. Consumers are a bit happier with supermarkets these days, more so than they've been in previous years. As more and more consumers are going online to make their food and beverage purchases, retailers have gotta find innovative ways to make shopping in a brick and mortar store more desirable, more than simply shopping on their computer or smartphone. As a result, More supermarkets are concentrating on their customer needs and in-store experiences, which has resulted in notably improved customer satisfaction. Recent years have shown great fluctuation when it comes to how shoppers feel about their grocery retailers. However, the most recent American Consumer Satisfaction Index, ACSI, saw approval ratings for supermarkets grow 6.8% to a score of 78 out of 100. To compare, just a year earlier in 2015, supermarkets registered their lowest ACSI score in more than a decade, dropping 3.9% to 73 points. Now, while the improvement reflected in the more recent report is a bit modest compared to past numbers, it's still encouraging news for supermarkets who are trying to retain their customers. Publix and Trader Joe's are grocers who flourish, with public service-first approach making it tops in consumer satisfaction every year. And Trader Joe's remains revered for its quality products and reasonable prices, and for providing a unique shopping experience. Meanwhile, Walmart maintains its rank as the lowest-scoring retailer. It appears that though customers may appreciate the discount chain's cheap prices, they do not appear to enjoy actually shopping there. At the same time, while not included in the ACSI score, Walmart continues to exhibit extraordinary growth in food e-commerce. Ultimately, the supermarkets with the high scores have been successful by keeping a customer-first attitude. What grocers need to know is as the e-commerce giant Amazon moves into the grocery space with its Whole Foods acquisition, brick-and-mortar stores acknowledge that they must provide excellent customer service if they want to keep customers physically walking into their stores. Low prices won't be enough to keep customers coming back if they're not satisfied with their actual shopping experience. It's time to hear direct from the farmer. And we couldn't have a better farmer than the new chairman of the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, Charles Bowling Jr. Chip is a third generation farmer who operates a 1,400 acre grain farm growing soybean, wheat, barley, and grain sorghum an hour's drive from our nation's capital. Chip, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank
2: you. Good morning.
0: Chip, congratulations on being elected to US Farmers and Ranchers as chairman.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Uh what's your hope in in showing how farmers and ranchers are the change makers and leading our sustainable food system?
2: So for me, my hope would be that we can partner with, you know, the 3 million other farmers and ranchers across this country that make their living growing food and producing crops that feed our nation and feed the rest of the world.
0: So um I'm a bit surprised to hear that there's 3 million farmers. I knew it was in the, you know, hundreds of thousands, but 3 million, that's an unbelievable number.
2: It is. Uh, it still makes us, you know, less than 1% of the population, yep. but there are a lot of people like me that uh, enjoy working on the land, enjoy being good stewards of our farms, and uh, it takes all of us working together for us to stay in business and stay sustainable.
0: It does, and and thank you for doing that and, and feeding us. Um, as a Maryland farmer with diversified crops, there must be some unique challenges farming these 400, 1,400 acres in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. How is sustainability and nutrient management a factor for you in today's farming?
2: Well, for me, when it comes to nutrient management, it's not just a choice that we make, it's mandatory. We have, a, you know, the EPA mandate that we have nutrient management plans on all every acre of our farms, on every farm that we work on. Um, the difference that I'm finding, you know, over the years as being a spokesman for national corn growers is, when I go to different states, they wanna know what it's like to farm in the Chesapeake Bay area. Mm-hmm. And those farmers, instead of being reactive, they're being proactive where they're trying to do the same thing that's mandatory for me on a voluntary basis, which I think is uh, a dramatic change in their thought process.
0: So, how do they? How does the EPA really calculate? You know, what you can do in Chesapeake Bay versus what a farmer in New Jersey can do.
2: So, for me, the EPA and the Maryland Department of Agriculture work together with every farmer that produces uh, over twenty five hundred pounds of goods on a farm, you have to have a nutrient management plan. So every farm, every field has a fertilizer prescription that I have to adhere to. If I don't have a nutrient management plan, I can't buy commercial fertilizers. So I have to follow those regulations every day, all year long. What I've been trying to promote, you know, across the country is, you know, let's take what we're doing here in Maryland that we have to do and produce it across the country, where it's a voluntary program, and it, it makes things much more easier to explain to our consumer of what we're doing and why we're doing
0: it. Absolutely, and and you know just being, uh, frankly, fair uh, throughout the the entire country to all the farmers. So why are why are the regulations so much stricter in Maryland than in other areas?
2: Well, the Chesapeake Bay is the biggest estuary in North America. 25 years ago, we started seeing water quality problems throughout the Bay. In my opinion, you know, the EPA and the consumer thought that agriculture was the problem of why the uh, water quality was deteriorating in the Chesapeake Bay. What we have actually found out that farmers are part of the problem and we are the major part of the solution. Uh, What we're finding out is, you know, over 20 years of collecting data, through the Chesapeake Bay mandate, that farmers have met their goals by over 100%, and it still hasn't changed the quality of the water in the bay that much. So what we're doing is a good thing, but what they found out is agriculture is not all the problem. It's urban and suburban sprawl, it's new subdivisions, it's, you know, it's corporations that uh, have facilities along the bay in Baltimore and, and the populated areas. Um, So that's what we're finding out, that we're part of the problem, not all of the problem.
0: That's great. So, Chip, lastly, um, can you share with us the importance of connecting with retailers and consumer packaged goods companies across the entire food value chain to help them really make more informed sources and procurement decisions?
2: So, absolutely. So for for me, when when I raise row crops 45 miles from Washington, D.C., every farm that I have There's a lot of traffic on the roads. There's a lot of people that see what I'm doing. They all want to know what I'm doing. And that's the same way as a pork producer in South Dakota or a beef producer in Illinois. The consumer wants to know where their food comes from. And it's important that the retailers and the CPGs talk to people like me and my fellow farmers and ranchers because we are good at what we do. We are always changing our process. We are always there to make things better so we are sustainable and profitable. And when those retailers and CPGs talk to us, we can get it right together. And to me, that's important that we work together. Our new slogan is every farmer, every acre, every voice. When we get all of our voices together at Farmers and Ranchers and we get the retailers and CPGs to work with us, you know, only good things can happen.
0: Absolutely. And, and I guess, you know, <clears throat> to underscore what you're saying, you know, having this communication and speaking honestly across the entire food chain is really what helps everybody, whether it's at retail or at the farm. Uh, Chip, again, congratulations on being the new chairman of U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance and all the best for the coming year.
2: Thank you. Look forward to talking to you again.
0: Thank you for joining us on Farm Food Facts. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, I hope you'll visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab. And visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA.